Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. We live in a world decisively organized everywhere by capitalism. Now, capitalism is a way that uh, the production of goods and services is organized, and today it's extremely interdependent and interconnected globally through multinational corporations, foreign direct investment, international trade, lending, borrowing, currency and bond markets, and in other ways. At the same time, capitalist development is highly uneven. Just think, for example, of the difference between capitalism in so-called Canada and capitalism in Haiti, just to give an extreme example. So there are deep structural inequalities in how capitalism has developed over time, starting in England over four centuries ago and spreading all over the world. So we live in a capitalist world, which is very hierarchical, not flat, as the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman once stupidly put it. What's more, capitalism is not just about the production for profit by competing firms that employ people who work for wages, although it certainly is. The system of states that we live in is also part of capitalism, and unfortunately, that's a reality that too few people on the left understand. So competition between states is also part of capitalist competition. This means we live in a world, one world, a capitalist world that's uneven, hierarchical, and within which there's a lot of rivalry between both companies and states. So there's a lot of conflict as well as cooperation. To help us understand this, the concept of imperialism can be very useful, provided that it's not trivialized and boiled down to mean something like what the United States does, which is what some people on the left do, or uh, providing it's not just reduced to what Lenin wrote back in 1916 in his pamphlet, Imperialism, the Highest Age of Capitalism, as if Lenin was entirely right even at the time, I I don't think he was, uh, and as if capitalism hasn't changed in important ways in the century since then, which it obviously has. But imperialism really can be a way of understanding how capitalism works as a global system, one that's organized hierarchically in a way that drains wealth from most of the world to the regions where capitalism is most developed, all to the benefit of capital in those societies above all. So we can think about an imperialist pyramid at the top of which is the United States of America, and below that, other imperialist states, including the UK, Germany, France, China, Russia, Canada, and Australia. Below them, sub-imperialist states with regional power, and in the bottom tier, most of the countries of the world. I think it's helpful to think about this uh, as what Lenin called an imperialist chain. In other words, a hierarchy of states that are engaged in both economic and geopolitical competition. This is the first of two episodes of Victor's Children about imperialism today. This episode is going to be focused on the United States, and we'll also talk a bit about other so-called Western imperialisms. The next episode will be focused on China, and we'll also talk a bit about Russia. Listeners who are interested in learning about imperialism in general and about Canadian imperialism might want to check out episode 10 of Victor's Children, uh, in which Todd Gordon discusses those issues. But today, my guest is Ashley Smith. So could you introduce yourself, Ashley? Hey, David. My name is Ashley Smith, and I am uh, I work for Spectre Journal as the um, production manager, and I'm a member of Tempest Uh the Tempest Collective, and I am active in all sorts of campaigns and local struggles, and I'm part of the Ukraine Solidarity Network in the U.S. that's been building solidarity with Ukraine's struggle for self-determination against Russian imperialism. I also learned recently that we are both fans of the uh, 16th, 17th century English composer William Byrd. Yeah, I love Byrd. I thought that was hilarious when you posted about it, and you were surprised that I liked liked it. I think you think I'm some kind of Philistine, but I'm not. No, not at all. I just, I just always surprised when I find a Marxist who uh, likes early modern music. Uh, so to, to start then, uh, can you give us the sketch of U.S. imperialism uh, back, going back to say 1990, when the USSR uh, co- was collapsing up until the great recession of 2007, 2009, over those years, what did the U.S. state try to do and how did it play out? 
Well, I think the beginning point to discuss this is understanding how different the world was before the end of the Cold War. Because during the Cold War, we had a situation there was in which there was very much a bipolar world order in which the main um, structures of geopolitical competition were defined by the opposition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And for at least for a long time, there was a pretty uniform block on, on both sides of those, the US with its NATO allies and the Soviet Union up until the early 1960s with China in a block with so-called um, uh, socialist states or communist states, which I always thought were a version of state capitalism. And the competition between those states was not directly economic. It was mainly military and geopolitical. And though and those blocks were quite economically segregated. Um, so we didn't have the kind of structures of global capitalism that we've seen emerge really since the, the 1990s in, in the, the world system. And because there was the threat of thermonuclear war between those two blocks, what people called mutually assured destruction, the geopolitical competition and military conflict was pushed to the margins of the system into the so-called developing world. So think of the Vietnam War, which was both a national liberation struggle and a conflict between the US on one side and the Soviet Union and China on the other side for the division and redivision of the world into these geopolitical blocks. So the Soviet Union collapsed both because it couldn't keep up with the military um, production in the US and because it didn't have access to international financial institutions like the United States had. And so it went into a long period of stagnation and increasing incapacity to compete militarily with the US um, Second Cold War during the 1980s when they ramped up military production on a massive scale under Reagan. And that was combined with a disastrous imperialist war that the Soviet Union carried out in Afghanistan to keep control of its sphere uh, of influence. And that led to the collapse of the Soviet government, its empire, and the opening up of the, the world system. So that brings us to the 1990s, in which the US enjoyed what some people call a unipolar moment, really from the 1990s up through 2008, when you could see it as the unrivaled global hegemon that faced no superpower um, competitor. It had the world's largest economy, by far the world's largest military. It possessed the dollar as the main reserve currency of the world system. And it dominated all the international institutions from the UN, the WTO, which it would found at the end of the decade, to the International uh, Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Bank. So it was in this moment of triumphant dominance over the world system. And you had all this um, uh, arrogant rhetoric from the U.S. state and its hangers on. So George Bush Sr. famously declared a new world order of peace, prosperity and global development. And Francis Fukuyama, our Hegelian um, policy wonk, wrote a book called The End of History, in which he said that free market democracies had emerged from the Cold War triumphant. They faced no systemic ally, and the U.S. would oversee an expansion of free market democracies throughout the world, bringing an end to any historic antagonism over the nature of the, the world, world uh, economy. Um, so under in this situation, the U.S. Um, under really Bush, Clinton, Bush Jr. and Obama shared a strategy, um, uh, a geopolitical strategy or a grand strategy for U.S. imperialism that was pretty much uniform. Their idea was to use the U.S. state and its ec enormous economic, military and geopolitical power, its soft power to subordinate and integrate all the world's states into a world system and uh, of uh, globally integrated capitalism, a neoliberal uh, world world order in which um, the, the the promise was that everybody would benefit. And so they set up the WTO to oversee this. They used the IMF, the World Bank, 
um, to enforce it. And all of this was to lock in the position of unipolar dominance over the, the world system. They used the dollar and debt diplomacy to pry open the more state capitalist countries of the world, especially in the global south. Again, with the promise that if you opened up to the world market, your people would benefit, your capitalists would benefit, and you'd see prosperity and um, development. Now, all of this did help um, uh, 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 um, accelerate a neoliberal boom that had begun in the Western Bloc in the 1980s to the world system in which we had a massive expansion from the early 1980s through the 1990s up to the 2008 Great, great um, Recession. But this global expansion was highly predatory, extremely uneven, and in subsections of the world, absolutely devastating to people's lives and livelihood as the profit motive of the world market um, uh, trumped all human need in countries like you referred to, Haiti, which is one of the great victims of global capitalism, um, uh, which had the free market policies thrust upon it at gunpoint by the U.S. US um, state. Um, so for a time, the U.S. had this position, and it was determined to enforce it with its with its um, uh, military, economic power, and its geopolitical dominance. And it did this in three different dimensions. Um, first, the the U.S. developed a policy of what one um, political scientist calls congagement, a combination of containment and engagement with both China and Russia, who were the antagonists during the, the Cold War. The US had already achieved the kind of rapprochement in the 1970s with China and decided through the course of the 1980s and especially in the 1990s to engage China and bring it eventually into the world trade organization, but it always hedged its bets, maintaining its giant archipelago of military bases in Asia to guard against what it saw as a, quote, communist state um, that might not um, uh, obey U.S. US uh, dictates. And the U.S. did the same thing in Europe against Russia. Um, it continued to do under the Clinton administration, massive enlargement of NATO to uh, um, bring the Eastern European states under its wing and in, in, uh, to guard against any kind of uh, revanchist assertion of Russian imperialism in, 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 the, in the region. And so they combined this policy of engagement with Russia with this containment policy. Um, and so that was a hedge in the world system. And I mentioned those two states because they're important for what we've seen in the more contemporary um, period. And then the second dimension of how the US used its state and military policy in particular was um, through uh, targeting what they called rogue states, that is states that refused to be integrated on US terms into the world system. And so obviously those are Iraq, North Korea and the list could go on of states that were recalcitrant to U.S. Uh, dictates. And so the U.S. pursued a policy that you could call military neoliberalism of targeting those states with belligerent um, geopolitical policies and military threats. And the 9-11 the attack on the United States the U.S. used in a, as an opportunity to finish business with those rogue rogue states. So the interventions in Afghanistan and the horrific war in and, and occupation in Iraq. And the third dimension of the U.S. use of its military power was policing the crises that the neoliberal boom and expansion, the predatory expansion I mentioned, um, produced. That is policing the crisis, policing the humanitarian disasters. So they came up with this whole category of humanitarian intervention, which was basically to contain and control crisis-ridden societies and prevent out-migration from them to destabilize the centers of world capitalism. So this entire strategy of, of enforcing a unipolar world through geopolitical, economic, and military power on the part of the United States was highly successful for a period. 
It helped extend the neoliberal boom, which began in the early 1980s. It successfully integrated most of the states into the U.S. orbit and on neoliberal uh, terms and expanded the structures of global capitalism, the kind of global supply chains that we've seen develop over the last few decades. And, you know, the U.S. stood in a position that seemed unrivaled, like a modern day Rome. So you had all sorts of, you know, pocket philosophers and people who are amateur historians compare the United States with uh, Roman Roman imperialism, but it had that kind of dominance and lack of arrival um, in, in the world system that is very marked and different from most periods of world capitalism. And, but given that, as David McNally um, uh, talked about in one of your episodes on the dialectic, there are contradictions that emerge within the development of uh, uh, of global capitalism, and the U.S. experienced three enormous contradictions that undermined its position of unipolar dominance. First, the neoliberal boom, which it wanted to help accelerate, um, led to the development of new centers of capital accumulation and therefore potential rivals to U.S. hegemony, in particular China, which went from a marginal economy in the world system in the 1970s to the second largest economy in the world, increasingly a large military power and a power that began to flex its geopolitical muscles. Um, the same boom um, helped enable the recomposition of the Russian state and Russian capitalism as a nuclear armed petropower with increasingly imperialist aspirations of its own. And then all sorts of sub-imperial powers that you referred to in your introduction, you could call them the BRICS, um, that uh, that uh, one one economist called them Brazil, Russia, India, China, South South Africa. Even though South Africa doesn't really fit, they called them the BRICS, which is an in, in example of these new centers of capital accumulation in the global South that, for a time, benefited from the neoliberal expansion. Um, so that began to change the unipolar world order economically. And the second thing, um, which undermined the unipolar uh, order that the U.S. enjoyed was Washington's disastrous war in Iraq, which whose main victim was obviously the Iraqi people. They shattered a society and imposed all sorts of free market madness on the on the country that um, haunt the haunt the people to today and massacred people in record numbers, as many as a million people they expect and they, they think were killed by the US, U.S. intervention. But it ended up bogging the U.S. down for nearly two decades in counterinsurgency warfare and occupation, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, that led to, the, in the words of one general, the greatest military defeat in U.S. history. That is the enormity of being bogged down and hemorrhaging treasure, lives, and political credibility in Bush's war in Iraq. The damage done to U.S. imperialism cannot be underestimated because it basically failed to um, impose its will on Iraq and thereby the entire Middle East and emerged from it actually weaker with Iran relatively strengthened and China and Russia increasingly assertive in, in the, the Middle East. And the third factor that I think undermined this unipolar order was the Great Recession in 2008 that brought an end to the vast neoliberal boom from the 80s up through 2008. That hammered the US and its European allies particularly hard. Um, and China, after being hit, um, used a vast stimulus package to become for a time the center of world growth. And um, it used that position of being the center of world growth to draw in nations around the world into economic relations and economic dependency on trade trade um, with, with uh, China. So out of the unipolar order, these three different kinds of crises and events and developments led to the emergence of what I call an asymmetric multipolar world order. The U.S. remains dominant by far, the biggest economy, military, with the dollar as the reserve currency and tremendous geopolitical influence, but 
It now faces real rivals in the form in particular of China, but also Russia and a host of sub-imperial powers that jockey between these this three-cornered um, uh, structure of world imperialism around the US, China, and Russia for their own advantage. Um, and that has now you know, supplanted and I think is widely accepted as the new characteristics of the structures of world world imperialism. So the unipolar moment is over. We now have this conflict crisis ridden asymmetrical multipolar world order of global capitalism. Thanks. That's a really helpful overview. Can you just briefly uh, talk in particular about the Obama years? So Obama became president in 2008 during the Great Recession. Uh, and between when he took office in 2009 and when Trump took office in 2017. Could you just say a few words about that? Yeah, I, I think Obama was really the first U.S. administration to recognize the changing dynamics of the structure of world geopolitical power and economic power um, and began a process of readjustment that would only really take full form in a particularly, you know, erratic, crazy way under the Trump administration and mature form under the Biden administration. Um, so what Obama basically did is first he had to repair the damage that the Bush administration had done to the economic position of the United States. That is in the middle of the Great Recession, the geopolitical reputation of the U.S., which had been burned up by um, its intervention into its war in Iraq. Um, remember, whole sections of Europe, the states opposed the war in Iraq. So the kind of structures of alliances that the U.S. had cultivated since World War II were frayed by the U.S. intervention in Iraq. And Obama wanted to repair the damage done to the U.S.'s soft power. That is, its ability to project itself as the, quote, shining city on a hill, a model for all countries, a democracy. You want to be an American. Everybody loves an American. After Iraq, nobody wanted to be like the U.S. state and its behavior. So I think that the Obama administration was very much about trying to repair the damage done by the Bush administration, but also advance, I think, a series of policy um, reorientations to address the this new asymmetric multipolar world order. Um, so the, the first thing he had to do was engage in the massive stimulus and bailout of, of U.S. capitalism, which had begun under the Bush administration and took full form really under the Obama administration to get U.S. capitalism back up and running as best they could. So they spent a tremendous amount of money, in the words of Occupy, bailing the banks out and selling us out um, to get the economy back on its feet. Then Obama engaged in this massive rehabilitation of U.S. Uh, of the U.S.'s reputation throughout uh, the world, um, celebrating democracy, promising peace, saying that the U.S. was interested in alliances and rebuilding their relationship with their, in particular, NATO allies. Um, so there was that whole kind of rebuilding of soft power and taking advantage, in particular, uh, 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 Obama being the first Black president in the history of a country founded on chattel racist slavery of trying to use his position to, in particular, make overtures to countries throughout the, the world in the, in, the global, um, in the global south. The big policy reorientations, I think, begin with a reorientation of U.S. imperial focus away from the Middle East towards dealing with the rise of China. Um, Obama really wanted to uh, wrap up the occupation of Iraq. He combined an initial surge with a drawdown in troops, but he really wanted to disengage from the heavy commitment of U.S. treasure and military forces to um, Iraq and the rest of the Middle East to reorient it um, to Asia that I'll talk about in, in uh, a, a moment. Um, and he also carried out a similar kind of operation in Afghanistan, an initial surge, but then a drawdown of troops to try and um, carry out a, a gradual disengagement from overseeing the occupation of Afghanistan. And on the question of 
uh, of counterinsurgency, he shifted U.S. military strategy away from occupying countries and putting people down with brute military force and by soldiers on the ground, boots on the ground towards counterterrorism. That is the drone warfare that Obama launched to carry out attacks on Al-Qaeda, killing Osama bin Laden, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole thing was an attempt to reorient away from what the Bush administration had done um, towards a new project, which Hillary Clinton famously called the pivot um, to, to Asia. That is, the U.S. wanted to shift to its engagement policy towards increasingly a containment policy of China's rise as a geopolitical, economic, and military power in the world uh, in the world uh, system. So the corner piece of this of Obama's strategy was the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the TPP, a giant um, uh, 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 regional trade pact that was premised on not allowing any state ownership of companies and state subsidy of companies. So very much a free market, neoliberal uh, economic trade pact in Asia, which obviously would exclude China because of its large state-owned and state-subsidized industry. So that was an attempt to economically pull all the countries of the region back under the wing of the United States because many of them have drifted economically into a close integrated relationship with, with China. The second dimension of the pivot was redeploying 60% of the U.S. Navy to the region. That is, China's building military bases in the South China Sea, increasingly assertive of its interests over um, the, the whole region in the Asia Pacific. And the U.S. counteroffensive led by Obama was to redeploy 60% of the U.S. Navy to, to the, the, the region. And he developed a whole military strategy of countering the island military building project that, um, uh, that China had carried out. Um, the third dimension was to try and gather allies in the region around this pushback uh, against China. So reopening all sorts of relationships with historic antagonists like Vietnam, but also bringing the Philippines, et cetera, under the wing of the United States. That pivot uh, to Asia, I think, failed. Um, number one, the ongoing, ongoing global slump uh, that the Great Recession opened and and, and detonated um, discredited neoliberal free trade deals um, all around the world, and in particular in the United States, where there where there was increasingly uh, a section of uh, of in particular the Republican Party that became hostile to these kind of free trade deals and the whole globalization strategy. So there was significant domestic opposition um, to the TPP that began to flip over even into the Democratic Party, and that meant that the TPP never even came up for a vote. So the cornerstone, which one of Obama's apparatchiks called more important than an aircraft carrier, the TPP, died. It withered on the vine, never came up for uh, a vote. The, the second development that undermined the pivot was the eruption of the Arab Spring and the destabilization of the Middle East, which meant that the U.S. continued to be bogged down in dealing with the geopolitical crises and tamping down the insurgency from below of the region to save its allied regimes and to ensure regime continuity, even among its antagonistic regimes, because it valued stability over everything else. And that meant that the U.S. continued to be more preoccupied with the Middle East than, than, than Asia. And that led to a third phenomenon, that the U.S. was increasingly overstretched trying to manage all of these uh, situations all around uh, the, the world. That gave space for China and Russia to become increasingly uh, aggressive in the assertion of their own imperial or interests, especially under Xi Jinping, who comes to power in the early part of the 2010s in the, during the Obama administration, he launches the Belt and Road Initiatives, a vast global development plan to integrate whole sections of the world economy under the Chinese wing. 
He launches China 2025, whose goal is to jump up the value chain and increasingly make China a competitor in high tech um, in the high tech economy. And he becomes even more aggressive in the island uh, building and sets up all sorts of geopolitical um, blocks: the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the BRICS initiative. And so you can see that that he the 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 regime, the Chinese regime, becomes increasingly assertive. Russia does the same thing. You can think about the succession of wars that Putin carries out, beginning with the second war in Chechnya, the intervention in Georgia, the war in Ukraine in 2014, and then the the um, intervention in Syria to save the Assad dictatorship, and then through the, the Wagner group, increasing intervention throughout whole sections of, of Africa. Many African countries became a place for Russia's, um, especially military operations, in support of its allied uh, regimes. Um, and then the final thing is that leads to the kind of crisis in the Democratic Party domestically is the uh, the consequences of the ongoing global slump domestically. That is deep inequalities of class, race, gender, nationality become worse and worse and worse under the Obama administration, triggering a whole rise of domestic resistance within the United States that's a problem for U.S. imperialism. So think of the Occupy movement, which discredits neoliberalism globally, the Black Lives Matter uprisings, a whole wave of uprisings that expose the violent police racism that keeps in place the structures of racial inequality in, in the United States. And then you have the beginnings of class resistant, the red state teachers revolt, and a whole repopularization of socialism and opposition to, to neoliberalism um, with, within the United States itself. But it also leads to deep political polarization as well. That is the rise of a new right in the Republican Party, beginning with the Tea Party and taking full expression under the, the, the Trump campaign of the Republican Party, which had been the historic A-team of American capitalism, the go-to boss's party, suddenly gets taken over by an erratic megalomaniac billionaire who has a hardcore nationalist white supremacist um, xenophobic politics that really doesn't serve the interests uh, of capital, but taps into the grievances that people have, especially among the new middle class, the petty bourgeoisie, and sections of the defeated and disorganized working class. And this becomes a political problem for what is the main party for U.S. capitalism and, Amer and imperialism, which is the Democratic Party. Um, but I'm anticipating what you're going to ask me next about the the ogre from from Florida. Right. So now we exactly we, we find ourselves uh, in this arc with the Trump administration uh, taking office, uh, and as you say, with objectives that are kind of out of sync with uh, those of most of the U.S. ruling class. So can you just talk a little bit, of, just briefly, about what its objectives were globally? and whether they were actually able to achieve any of them. So, so the, the key thing to begin with is just recognizing the anomaly of Trump himself. That is, this guy is what uh, uh, um, Sam Farber calls a, a lumpen bourgeois or a lumpen capitalist. That is, he's not really part of the elite capitalist clubs. He's a kind of outsider um, and uh, is resentful about that. And brought around himself all these far-right figures like Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and a bunch of other people who are right-wing nationalists and open racists and white supremacists. Um, and the stunning thing is that he defeated the paragon of neoliberal imperialism, Hillary Clinton, who ran an extremely boring campaign, had no sense of life, and didn't tap into the deep grievances in American society because she couldn't, because it crossed out the political and economic projects she was committed to. So she went down in defeat and lost to this very odd figure in US political history that had an enormous impact on not only the United States, but the world. So his basic program was what he said, to make America great again by putting America first. That is the basic synopsis of what he, he uh, 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 promised. Um, and so it's a little bit hard to figure out 
what Trump actually wanted to do because of his erratic, will-o'-the-wisp, whimsy kind of policy decisions. Because as people who wrote books about him described, he would say whatever the last advisor who had his ear said. And so there was not much consistency. So really, you have to try and extract a rational kernel out of the mystical shell of Trump's, Trumpism to try and understand what this guy was really, really up to. And his administration itself makes it harder because it was initially a shotgun marriage between Trump as this white supremacist nationalist and the GOP's political establishment, which was very much com committed to neoliberalism. Um, so there's a very contradictory uh, administration as, as, as a result. Um, but I think if you can look at what Trump actually did, there was a, one um, political scientist called, uh, called it illiberal hegemony. That is, he was committed to U.S. global dominance but not through multilateralism, but a transactional relationship with every state in the world um, to get the best deal for the United States, even if that meant trashing international institutions, trashing free trade deals, trashing historic alliances, attacking NATO, which Trump did um, repeatedly. Um, and in terms of actual policy, he combined neoliberalism, you know, giveaways to the rich, deregulation of the economy with a new commitment to in great power imperial rivalry, specifically with China and Russia. He named both of them in his policy documents, but really only took China seriously. For whatever reason, Putin had some dirt on Trump, we don't know, but he never uh, uh, pursued a coherent strategy vis-a-vis Putin and Russia, but did toward China, which I'll talk about in a second. And then final dimension of what Trump was up to, in addition to this kind of neoliberal deregulation and great power rivalry with China and Russia, was a very transactional relationship with, as I said, allies and antagonists. So he would make a deal with anybody. Like if you ever watched his horrific show, I forget what it was called, You're Fired or something. He had a transactional relationship with everybody as part of his business uh, persona. So what did he do in, in policy terms? He uh, gave enormous tax breaks to the rich, despite his kind of populist promise uh, promises to workers and um, poor petty bourgeois small business owners, gave enormous tax breaks to the rich and massive deregulation um, in, in the U.S. economy. He carried out vicious scapegoating of all oppressed groups, in particular migrants, building walls, which is part of the kind of nationalist, protectionist, white white supremacist politics that he was an advocate uh, overall, and in particular pursued this um, great power rivalry um, with China. He nixed the TPP, said, we're not going to do that. Um, and he also deprioritized, like Obama, the, the so-called war on terror um, and for the counterterrorism that Obama was using, and then did this uh, very transactional relationship with allies and pursued these kind of bilateral deals with everybody under the sun from allies to, to antagonists, not multilateral ones. So he was very dismissive of NATO, the WTO, the World Bank, the IMF, and the United Nations. All of this caused domestic problems for the Trump administration because it inflamed the already developing opposition from below that I talked about earlier. So we had massive women's marches against his uh, sexist biggest tree, another wave of a Black Lives Matter uprising, massive solidarity with, with immigrant rights and migrant struggles at, at the borders. All of this tremendously alienated the Washington's allies and and which would come back to haunt the 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 administration in in particular. Um, at the same time, he whipped up this uh, antagonism with China, imposing protectionism. And this is the new development. This is the break with neoliberalism. A serious new protectionist economic policy, saying. I am going to raise tariff barriers against Chinese exports into the United States in the interests of nationally oriented U.S. capital. 
At the same time, he sanctioned Chinese companies and barred, based on national security reasons, exports of certain U.S. technologies to China. So you have a whole shift out of neoliberalism towards a more protectionist um, policy. And he paired that with large increases in the military budget and increasing assertiveness of, U of the U.S. military um, like Obama had wanted to start in, in Asia. Trump really begins to follow through uh, on this. If anything, all of Trump's policies, especially because they were carried out by this erratic um, figure led to the relative, further relative decline of US imperialism and US capitalism. His mismanagement of the pandemic particularly hammered the, the US um, and because he could have handled it way differently, way earlier on that would have saved lives and probably prevented some of the worst economic impacts. He oversaw a deep recession that was in part triggered by the, the pandemic. He alienated the, uh, the Washington's allies and he really compromised the soft power of US imperialism globally. Um, and I think that was particularly um, wrecked by the January 6th uprising in which Trump unleashed a mob of far-right fanatics to lead a larger crowd to march on the Capitol building to try and um, overrule the democratic will um, expressed in the bizarre undemocratic structures of U.S. democracy and ensure that he would continue to be president, a kind of shambolic coup attempt um, that went down uh, very easily in flames and a lot of his minions are paying for that and he may pay for that. So at the end of the Trump administration, the Trump, the U.S. did not look like a, a, a shining city on the hill at all. If anything, it looked like what Trump called many uh, countries in, in a racist fashion in the global south, a shithole country, which I think summarizes the conditions for where the U.S. was after the Trump administration. So then in 2021, you have Biden taking office, much to the relief, I think, of most CEOs in the U.S. and certainly for most of the people responsible for running the U.S. state at the highest levels. What's the Biden administration been trying to do on the global stage and how's that gone for them? Well, the Biden administration, not that different than Obama, inherits a mess from the previous Republican administration. And his top priority is the rehabilitation of U.S. imperialism and the restoration of U.S. capitalism supremacy, especially against China. That's his overriding and guiding motive for his entire administration. That new strategy combines great power rivalry with what I call the muscular multilateralism. So he takes from Trump the commitment to great power rivalry with, with China and Russia and combines it with rebuilding the alliance structures of U.S. imperialism and ganging them together against both Russia and, 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 and China. It, it wants to build a geopolitical block against, against those, quote, revisionist powers, the people who don't obey the so-called rules-based order. They're autocratic states. You can hear all the buzzwords of the Biden administration and what I'm saying. Um, this, this strategy drives everything that Biden is doing. And it's important to understand that so that you don't separate his domestic policy from his international policy because they are fused at the hip. They're indistinguishable from one another, which is very important because a lot of people on the left celebrate some of the domestic stuff and don't see how deeply tied it is to the assertion of U.S. imperialism uh, uh, abroad. So the domestic and international policy are, are each part of a whole strategy of the re restoration of U.S. imperial and capital capitalist supremacy over the, the world system. Um, and it's interesting in this policy that Biden comes up with, he explicitly abandons neoliberalism as the guiding Econo political economic strategy of the U.S. state. Janet Yellen calls their new strategy modern supply-side economics, a kind of post-Keynesian strategy of state-funded development of the economy. I call it imperialist Keynesianism, and it's important to be clear about this. It's not a return to the old welfare state, that was never on Biden's agenda. It's not done to appease the very small U.S. left, and it's all about restoring the economic foundations of U.S. geopolitical and imperial power in the world system. In other words, as Biden put it, America's not first, America's back at the head of the table. That's what Biden's agenda in a nutshell is, is all about. 
Now, his original bill was called Build Back Better, and it had multiple goals um, to accomplish this project. Number one was to establish an industrial policy to fund and give tax breaks to high-tech producers, high-tech manufacturers, in particular in chips and solar power, two parts uh, of the, the world economy that either the U.S. had a position of dominance in, but not manufacturing dominance, or were under threat from competition with with China. So his industrial policy, which he sells to American workers as a jobs program, is an imperialist is an imperialist policy. Second thing he wanted to do and build back better was to increase social welfare spending in a pretty modest fashion. Um, Uh, to ameliorate the kind of class and racial inequalities that had so disrupted American politics and led to the struggles that I talked about a little while while ago. And a subsidiary goal of that was to co-opt and neutralize the left inside the Democratic Party to go along with with his program. And the final dimension was to invest in hard infrastructure, which if you've had the unpleasant experience of going to a U.S. airport or driving over a U.S. bridge or riding on a on Amtrak, um, you know, is in a state of serious disrepair. And our lack of high speed Internet is an embarrassment for U.S. imperialism. So Biden wanted to invest in all this infrastructure to retrofit and increase the competitive um, capacity of U.S. US capitalism. So in the end, the Republicans and Democrats nixed his investment in social welfare spending. So he got very little beyond pandemic emergency funding through through the through the government in any kind of bills. He has issued some executive orders to partially deal with these things. Um, and I'll talk about what happened to those in a second. But he has plowed over the next decade close to $4 trillion in the U.S. economy through four key plans. First, the American Rescue Plan, which was designed um, to get the U.S. economy out of pandemic recession with checks sent to people's houses, subsidies for businesses, um, increased uh, uh, welfare spending um, for the the context of the pandemic. Um, Then he followed that up with the Infrastructure Act, which did all the things about roads, bridges, rail and internet. Um, And then the Inflation Reduction Act was the third one, which is overly celebrated as a giant climate bill when it's actually a massive subsidy to US capital to to invest in chips technology, in uh, solar production, and it doesn't include fossil fuel investment. In fact, it's better thought of as full spectrum dominance. The US wants to have all corners of energy in in its uh, uh, increased and funded. so a lot of the fossil capital actually is supportive of the um, of the Inflation Reduction Act because they've been unleashed to do more drilling on the promise that the carbon capture technology that the bill funds will mitigate the negative impact of the new fossil fuel um, expansion that the bill um, in, enables. And then the final thing is the Chips and Science Act, which I think in many ways is the most important of the bills that Biden passed. It spends that god-awful amount of money on funding chip manufacture in the United States through direct uh, subsidy and also tax breaks, and much of that is already starting to happen. It also funds um, the stemification of American higher education so that there's more science, tech, engineering, and mathematics funded at the very same time that humanities are being ravaged all across the American higher education system. Also a whole retooling of American higher education so that it can serve the needs of the high-tech capitalist industry that Biden is uh, subsidizing. And in particular, the Biden wants to do this to end the dependency on key choke points for the U.S. high-tech economy, in particular Taiwan, because Taiwan, right on the border with China, uh, uh, um, produces 90% of the world's um, uh, advanced chips. So the U.S. wants more and more of that friendshored to places that are not in jeopardy, not beholden to China, and also to uh, bring them back into the United States with new um, manufacturing plants in 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 the United the United States. 
Parallel to this big economic project, this imperialist Keynesianism, Biden has also increased the military budget um, uh, to, to fund the redevelopment and modernization, which the last several presidents have been doing of the U.S. military. That's gone along with an escalation of U.S. military pacts globally. So we have the new Australia, British, um, U.S. Uh, pact in Asia, what's called AUKUS, the, by the abbreviations of Australia, UK, and the United States, which uh, enables nuclear submarines to be sold, um, British nuclear submarines to be sold to Australia that will escape the patrols and uh, sonar detection equipment of the Chinese Chinese military. He's doubled down on the Quad, which is another military geopolitical alliance that um, attempts to bring India in opposition to, to, to China, despite India being part of the BRICS formation with China. And then most importantly, doubling down um, uh, on, the, on the NATO alliance, which is key for US hegemony in, in Europe. So that geopolitically gets paired with Biden's attempt to band all of its his, uh, Washington's historic allies together in a so-called League of Democracies. And he's had two of these summits where all the so-called democratic states come together to talk about how they can cooperate against the so-called autocratic states. Uh, of course, all of this is a lot of smoke and mirrors because a lot of the so-called democratic states, including the United States, have deeply autocratic um, features and uh, nobody should fall for this division of the world states into democratic ones and autocratic ones. It's a lot of hypocritical rhetoric, but none, nonetheless, it's a real push to try and ban states together in an alliance against China and and uh, Russia. All of this is to drive the antagonism, the great power rivalry with China and Russia. Toward China, there is no doubt that this is a new containment strategy vis-a-vis -vis, um, China. Biden has maintained a lot of the protectionism and sanctions that um, Trump passed on China, and he's added new ones um, to, to, to uh, that list of sanctioned companies and protection uh, protected industry. And he's pressuring allies, Europe in particular, to do the same thing, to follow uh, the U.S. And now he's um, because decoupling was so uncomfortable to talk about in global capitalism, he's now introduced, along with others in Europe, a new term to describe their economic relationship with China, which is de-risking. So they want to de-risk their economic dependency on China. What do they mean by that? They want to uh, extract their dependence on any high-tech production on China that has military applications. And they wanna protect any of that technology from getting in the hands of the Chinese because the high-tech industry is so integrated with the military system right now. The F-35 cannot fly without the advanced microchips. That's how integrated it is. So whoever gets those microchips has vast military um, capacities. Um, so there's this strategy of de-risking that they're uh, pursuing. Um, and then Biden is also engaged in this military pushback against, against China in the South and East China Sea, in particular collabor collaborating with Japan in a push, um, but now the Philippines as well, in a push against China with massive military operations um, that are in, an, of an unprecedented um, size. And Taiwan is at the heart of this geopolitical antagonism and not just geopolitical, deeply economic antagonism with, with China. As I said, Taiwan produces 90% of the world's advanced microchips. That means whoever gets Taiwan has a chokehold on the world economy, as important as oil was for Bush in, in the Iraq war, to give you a sense of the kind of enormity of the stakes in this conflict of uh, over Taiwan. China declares Taiwan a renegade province. The U.S. has historically had a policy that was ambiguous towards uh, Taiwan, that combined uh, a kind of support for Taiwan with the one China policy that recognized that there was only one China and Taiwan was not an independent state. Biden has blurred that, driving China crazy, antagonizing them. Nancy Pelosi's visit 
further inflame this. So Taiwan is becoming the epicenter of the main geopolitical uh, conflict. Biden has done similar, although before the Ukraine war, not as dramatic policies towards Russia. He went after Putin for election interference. He um, countered Putin's, uh, you know, geopolitically countered Putin's assertiveness in Eastern Europe, and he started the process of revitalization of NATO to draw in the Eastern European states and to consolidate the Western European states under the United States. But all of this got off to a really rocky start for the Biden administration, symbolized by the symbolic withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was he did not alert the European allies that were part of the occupation. He abandoned the Afghan government, which fell overnight to the Taliban and um, made the U.S. again look profoundly weak um, and not that strong in the world system. And that is contemporaneous with an increasing um, uh, relationship between China and Russia in which they declared a you know uh, a lifelong friendship i forget the phrase that they they use a permanent alliance lifelong friendship friendship without limits that was the phrase that uh, they used at the beijing olympics and i think putin saw afghanistan and saw an opportunity for an assertion of russian imperialism in ukraine and this is where the stakes and the conflicts really change and escalate in the last couple uh, of years. Um, so Putin launches this Russian imperialist war to rebuild the Russian empire and seize Ukraine. Um, and uh, Biden alerts the world to this coming, but does very little as this thing is mounting and expects Ukraine to fall almost immediately um, in the face of Russian uh, troops, which everyone believed have greater fighting capacity than they actually have been shown to, to have. So Biden then reluctantly um, supports what is a national liberation struggle of the Ukrainian people against Russian imperialism, a fight uh, for self-determination that deserves all our solidarity. But Biden seizes this moment to accomplish imperialist goals. That is, there's a proxy dimension to what Biden is trying to do in Ukraine, and that is revitalize NATO, bind the European states under the US wing, and not only uh, pressure them into opposition to Russia, but also begin to turn their opposition towards China itself. If you looked at the last NATO summit before this most recent one, NATO declared that China was a strategic concern of, uh, of the NATO alliance. So you have the North American Treaty Organization suddenly declaring that China in the Eastern Hemisphere is an antagonist. Uh, um, and so you can see what Biden is doing. He is subordinating what's a national, trying to subordinate a national liberation struggle um, to become an opportunity to the for a reflexing of uh, of the power of U.S. imperialism. So Biden, I think, overall has been tremendously successful, but faces enormous problems that I think are beginning um, to, to uh, develop. Um, number one, that the allies are bound together against Russia, and the U.S. has scored some victories in delinking a lot of uh, oil and natural gas dependency by Europe on Russia. And the U.S. is now trying to say, we'll export all the natural gas you use. So there's a political and economic integration of Europe uh, against uh, against uh, uh, Russia. And I think has had similar success in, in, in bandying allies together against um, China. But they face deep problems. Um, there's the economic malaise that is characteristic of the global slump around the world. There's profound inflation in all the uh, countries of the world. It's lessening in the U.S., but the permanent impact of the inflated prices is still being borne by workers and the oppressed. And that has undermined Biden domestically. So he has approval ratings despite his successes internationally and in passing all this legislation that hover around 41, 42%. And in polls of an election between him and Trump, he could lose by 2% if the election were held today. Despite Trump being convicted 
and facing multiple indictments on January 6th, the election interference and everything uh, under the sun. And the right is actually on the offensive right now in the states they control, whereas the left and social movements and class struggle, except for the possibility of a strike at UPS, is relatively quiescent and passive right now and largely incorporated and looking to the Biden administration. So I think where Biden has gone through his first two years scoring some tremendous advances, but now faces serious, serious problems. Perhaps before we close, you could uh, do you have any thoughts you'd like to uh, to share about specifically the most powerful Western European societies, like the UK, Germany and France, and where they fit in relation to the US and global capitalism today? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because the the growing rivalry between the U.S. and China, as well as with the U.S. and Russia, has put Europeans kind of subordinate imperialist powers in a quandary. Because if you think back about how European capitalism has functioned, the U.S. has led them in two ways um, now that are a bit in contradiction. One, um, they have incorporated them into the neoliberal global capitalist structures through the WTO, through the IMF, World Bank, um, all the international financial institutions and the networks of the internationalization of capital. On the other hand, they have kept, the US has kept the NATO powers dependent for security on NATO and thereby the United States. Um, And that was the purpose of NATO to begin with, as everybody probably remembers, Lord Ismay, the first Secretary of General of NATO famously said that NATO's role is to keep the Russians out, Germany down, and the US in Europe. And that's been its security function really since the end of of World War um, II. contradiction of globalization and security dependence, I think was manageable um, uh, um, until Ukraine and the U.S. antagonism with China, which is beginning to put pressure on European capital as it is heretofore existed. Um, that the great These great power rivalries are beginning to pry apart the structures of global capitalism that we've seen develop since the, the 1990s. And that causes a lot of problems for European capital, especially Germany, which has been dependent on Russia for its energy reserves, natural gas, and oil um, uh, to power its industries. And Europe has been deeply integrated with the Chinese economy. And so, you know, Germany in particular, which sees it as a major export market for its industrial tools products, as well as a market for Volkswagen, et cetera, which have historically been highly invested in the Chinese Chinese market. So the secu- the pressures for de-risking are beginning to pry apart the the um uh, structures uh, 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 we've 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 seen so far. So the U.S. under Trump has and, and then Biden have pushed for this kind of de-linking, de-risking, um, and a partial separation of Europe, Russia, and China. And you know Biden has been successful in doing that. Now you know there's been a big uh, lessening of uh, of European dependence on natural gas and and oil and the promise that US natural gas will will supplant it. On China he's also pushing Europe to follow the US lead and do impose protectionism and sanctions on on um the high tech industry and as i said has been trying to use nato to reorient european uh, states uh, against uh, against china but european capital um is at the same t- and so they've been in this position of subordination um and that has caused them uh to have a problem with this kind of prying apart of global uh capitalism and with the kind of security dependence that they've got so they're they're caught in the serious contradiction and that contradiction is magnified by the fact that european capital also competes with us capital and it's important to understand this because the they've begun to object 
to Biden's industrial policy, if people have been following that, because there are enormous subsidies that are going to the U.S. high-tech industry and to its solar industry, and there are protectionist measures that go along with that that are a real problem for European capital. So European capital is now starting to pursue its own version of modern supply-side economics or imperialist Keynesianism um, to begin subsidizing even more, as they did with Airbus, um, European uh, European industries in high tech and um, uh, 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 and uh, and solar. Uh, production. So there's that competitive dynamic. Um, as a result, they have a contradictory relationship with U.S. imperialism. They continue to be collabor to collaborate with the U.S. through NATO and are therefore sub subordinated to it. But at the same time, they're competing economically, um, and that's produced partial compliance with Biden um, and raising military spending um, all across the board in Europe. Um, but it's also produced opposition, especially from Emmanuel Macron in France, who said, we don't need to do this de-risking. We don't need to go along with this kind of NATO militarism. And he's been the most prone to cut a deal with, with Russia over Ukraine. So there's subordination of these imperialist states in Europe to the United States. There's also competition and there's potential antagonism. We'll see, we'll see how it unfolds. But all of this, I'll just say the final thing, underlies for me what's most important for the left on a global scale, which is that we have to understand the world as it existed in the post-Cold War period is over. We're a new epoch of what Adam Tooze calls a polycrisis, or, you know, I don't particularly like that term, but it captures a sense of the multiple crises from economic to inter-imperial rivalry to climate crisis to the pandemic to the global migrant crisis as a whole unstable epoch in which you know the kind of expectations of growth of the system peace in the system prosperity in the system that George Bush promised us at the dawn of the uh, unipolar moment all of that is over and what we now have is this asymmetric world order of intensifying inter-imperial antagonism and conflict between, between states and eruptions of struggle from below in the whole world. And what we need is a new left reorganized politically and reconstituted politically that is up to this challenge, that it can oppose US imperialism, oppose its rivals, be in solidarity with all struggles for self-determination from Palestine to Ukraine, and most importantly, build international solidarity with working class organizations, organizations of oppressed people, and a left and rooted in all the countries of the world to provide an alternative so that we escape the trap that we are in in the United States in particular um, of facing an asymmetric polarization between a liberal establishment in the in the Democratic Party and a far right white supremacist nationalist party in the case of the Republican Party. We desperately need a new left to be built to challenge that situation in the United States and similar situations throughout the world. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Ashley, for this discussion. And we're going to be following up with another episode looking at the other side of the inter-imperialist rival we've been talking about today, focusing on China. So listeners can look forward to that. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>